We're going to be facing some things that uh, is kind of an unpredictable road. And God gives us the roadmap on how to face anything that's thrown our way, both in our individual lives and personal ways uh, that are unpredictable. And then in broader, big picture ways that are unpredictable, God's kingdom's advancing. We just have to get into the flow of God's providence in that. But we can do that very specifically with God's word. And he gives us some marching orders that I want to turn our attention to. In Matthew chapter 6, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. How do we pray in a world that's changing? How are we supposed to do it? What are we supposed to pray? Well, let's just look at the Lord's template here for praying. Matthew 6, verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'm certain if I were to take a survey this morning and ask you, are you ready for coming persecution or do you think you would, how do you think you would hold up? I think like me, I would say, I don't know. I, I, I think I'm ready or maybe I'm not, but I just want you to be assured of something as a believer, God's not going to leave you or forsake you no matter what happens. And in one sense, because of the promises, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. You have promises that God has made to you to keep you. So you are ready. Whether you realize it or not, we are ready. And God readies us in his promises and he readies us in his commands. We need to know how to pray. And our prayers are part of the preparation to face anything that life brings our way. 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15, a servant's not greater than his master. They, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. It is promised. It should not surprise us that persecution is happening in our world. It's been happening in the body of Christ since the beginning. Just read the book of Acts. But persecution is closer than Perhaps we even know it's unpredictable in terms of the way things are exponentially changing around us. Uh, when I was down in Southern California, there was a lot of talk about a particular pastor who's a master seminary graduate. His name's James Coates. He pastors in Alberta, Canada, and he and his wife, Erin, um, they're similar age to Nathan Schneider, who was just the worship leader a few minutes ago. They're, they're good friends and James uh, was under the same kind of uh, executive orders or emergency orders that we uh, underwent here and are navigating. And they basically, as a church, uh, reasonably complied, social distance at a level, still met. They weren't supposed to worship. They worshiped, nevertheless, out loud. Uh, They had a section in the balcony, plexiglass, where people could sit and masked um, separation. and, And they live streamed and made no coercion for people to come, but they just opened the doors. Nevertheless, other churches did that, but James was flagged um, as being 
out of line, out of order. He preaches expository preaching. He's very convictional. I watched a, a video interview of his wife, Erin, explaining how they work through things as an eldership and thinking and being careful. But, but how, as the bride of Christ um, needed to be cared for, uh, they viewed as a ministry and a mission that it was very important to gather and still um, commune together and to worship together and to do that. And so... There wasn't a cavalier attitude behind this, but the governing authorities summoned uh, James to come in. He went in free um, of his own free will, and, and then they incarcerated him, and they took him away in bonds. And so he's in jail, separated from his wife and his two kids, two young kids, and was given the opportunity to sign a paper, a commitment paper, to say he would not preach and that the church would no longer gather in the way they were gathering, and um, he refused to sign it. And so whatever you would agree or disagree with amongst the details and decisions that led to this, um, we need to pray for the Coates family. We need to um, honor the conviction that they have to try to be biblical. These days, the difference between a strong church and a weak church are becoming ever clearer, aren't they? It used to be that churches that would meet and gather under the same doctrinal statement would carry out their mission in different ways and, and where they would put the accent marks on certain doctrines and say certain things or not say certain things became this sort of nebulous way to try to figure out what's a strong church and what's a weak church. The seeker-sensitive movement has reigned for decades and it's the idea of programming church in a way that will draw crowds and get as many people to a place as possible. It's not wrong to try to set the stage for kids to be happy, but when the tail wags the dog, it, you know, it, it can sublimate what's really important in terms of worship and opening the word and saying hard things, speaking hard truth that people need to hear. When you speak hard truth, the hearts soften. The harder the truth, the softer the heart a lot of times. But when there's compromise, when people are unwilling to say the hard things about biblical marriage, biblical masculinity, biblical femininity, to talk about one woman for one man for life as the biblical ideal, as the path of truth and the narrow road of the gospel, there's only one way to heaven the other religions. There is no sort of secret door to get into heaven. It's only through Christ the scripture is absolutely sufficient. Everything we need for life and godliness is here in the Bible. These hard truths are not really attractive to consumer-minded Christians. Worshiping Christians want the truth. They won't come unless the word of God is open and spoken with boldness and clarity. Consumer Christians, they want programs. They want things to be served up to them. They're the critics who sit. And what's ironic now is that the seeker-sensitive movement is being blown up because the culture has been what's led the seeker-sensitive movement in the past. And now the culture is saying, stay home, isolate, get away from people rather than gather in mass. And so the seeker-sensitive movement doesn't have anywhere to go with their philosophy of ministry. The seeker-sensitive movement will have to, if it's going to sustain, it'll have to compromise at even a deeper Level, And I don't know what it will look like, but that's not my concern this morning. My concern is to say that the lines are clearer in terms of 
biblical faithfulness and nominal Christianity. If you're just a Christian in name only, but not in sure commitment of the word of God and who Christ is and kingdom work and and putting yourself out there, if you're not committed on that level, gathering for church and coming to church and being a part of the church is not going to be as attractive to you. Coming potential persecution will cause you on a personal level to be tempted to equivocate on the message. You might be in situations where you are being asked to compromise on the job at risk of losing your job and your Christian testimony is on the line and your conscience. And if you don't understand what true Christianity is as a worshiper of God, as someone who is committed to the Lordship of Christ, it's going to be very easy to equivocate or to compromise or not take a stand. And so I believe the Lord has led us to very clear principles for how to pray during a time like this within the church. What does true commitment to Christ look like these days? And are we ready and prepared for whatever our world will throw our way? The way to be ready is simply this. Take the posture of worshiper, not consumer. Go to God's throne for preparation to run this race, this next chapter of the Christian life. How do we pray? Well, the Lord has given six petitions here that we are to pray. We're to pray these petitions with regularity. God's word and specifically the teachings of Christ and the Sermon on the Mount with prayer could not be clearer. They could not be more principalized. They could not be more easily to follow than you have before you. How do we pray? Well, first of all, we pray in broad strokes. The first three are very broad. We're praying for the glory and the fame and the name of Christ to spread. That's what we're praying. We're, we're petitioning God for his name to be hallowed or set apart in our world. We want, in a broad sense, God's glory to show up and spread. How's it going to sp- be spread? Well, the second request, your kingdom come. How is God's kingdom coming? It's coming in the hearts of conversions. We're praying for conversions. We're praying for God's glory to spread, his name to spread, for the gospel to go out, for people to be saved and converted. The more conversions you have, the more transformation you have, the more witness you have in our world. A lot of ways to try to temporarily transform our culture through governing laws that are passed or people who are elected as officials. We want godly people in elected office for sure. We want morality, for sure. We want law. We want order, for sure. For certain, we want these things. But no matter what the government is doing, no matter what stand it's taking, no matter how much false, wrong, ideological, idol idol worship messages are being sent through media, no matter how much compromise is being just injected into the minds of children and adults in terms of sensuality and wrong paths to take, no matter how bad that is, the gospel's bigger, God is reigning, his kingdom is going to be advanced, and we just have to get into the flow of that as we preach and live the gospel in our world. So as the pressure comes on, the, the message and mission becomes a lot more clear, doesn't it? Does it not? It does. And so thirdly, not only do we pray for God's name and fame to spread, his name to be 
hallowed or set apart his kingdom to come through conversions. But thirdly, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And where is heaven on earth? Well, it's here in the church. As we participate in the church, as you gather for church, as you minister within the church, as you identify with the body of Christ, you are fulfilling his will on earth as it is in heaven. It's an amazing connection between local church and universal church, between here and heaven. And this is the lifeline as we come together. We're praying in these three regards in broad sweeps, but now we get to three final petitions. How do we face anything life throws at you? Well, it's praying three of our Lord's prescribed petitions. These last three are daily provision, complete pardon, and spiritual protection. Daily provision, complete pardon, and spiritual protection. Number one, daily provision. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now, what is immediately striking to me is the first three petitions are so broad. God's holiness, his name being spread, God's kingdom advancing, God's will being done. These are broad concepts to pray. And God is absolutely concerned with his own glory and rightfully should be. But now his concern turns from a vertical prayer to a horizontal prayer, or from a broad prayer to an individualized prayer. From God being holy to God also being love in your life. God who, as one person said, holds all the whirling worlds and spinning stars in the palm of his hand. This same God cares about your daily bread. Shots of Mars and all of these, you know, things that we see in space now, where we're kind of looking around through, uh, you know, different YouTube things or Facebook things are amazing to us. But God is not amazed. He's not surprised by what Mars looks like. He's been looking at that since he created Mars. And this same God cares about whether you're going to eat today. That's God who is big who's broad, who's also intimate. God who cares about the corporate and he cares about the individual. The Lord cares about our day-to-day life. And that's what we're praying in terms of. The government may trend away, but this God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And he cares for our needs. And what is daily bread? Well, I want to begin with the word daily here. This word is kind of a one-off in Matthew's vocabulary, and really it's a one-off in Greek literature. It's a hard word to find anywhere else, even again in the Bible. So did Matthew make it up? Well, he didn't. Scholars found this word on a papyri, a little loose sheet of paper dated back early, early church time, you know, maybe AD 30s or whatever. But it was a, it was a word that was found there in regards to a shopping list shopping list. So give us this day our our daily bread, like provide for me, Lord, today for my needs. Now, people have spiritualized bread in many ways in the church. Jerome, the early church father, said that bread is like manna from heaven, like God providing for us spiritually, a super substantial bread or miracle bread. 
Um, it was sort of likened to the manna from heaven, the flaky, honey-tasting bread that was provided supernaturally in Exodus, Exodus 16, 14, and 31. Or in the Catholic Church, the Holy Eucharist. We're going to be observing communion, but there's nothing supernatural about the little wafer here. This is a symbol of what Christ has done on the cross for us that we are reminded of by faith. Daily provision is really not to be spiritualized here at all. Daily bread is God cares that you are going to eat. God cares that you are going to have a roof over your head. He's providing for your needs. And so how do we pray? Watch this. How do we pray in a culture that where there's pressure? There might be pressure to compromise, pressure to try to keep your job as a Christian by not saying something or by not going with the flow of what compromise is laid before you by trying to keep your Christian testimony. How are we to pray? We're to pray that God will just provide for my needs every single day. This is a prayer for provision, not even specifically about bread. I like bread like the next guy, you know, focaccia, French, sourdough, not trying to tempt you guys to think about lunch. I know I've done it, but bread is a synonym for provision. It's like the jargonized um, word bread is money. It's um, God is providing for us the basics of life and God cares for that. Uh, the crowd he was speaking to at this, on the Sermon on the Mount where he's on a mountainside and he's got a crowd before him was filled with people who were what were called day laborers who would earn a denarii or a day's wage. When I was studying at seminary in Los Angeles, I would drive on the way to school and I would see 20 or 30 day laborers just waiting on the street corner, waiting to be picked up to earn money that day for a day's wage so that they could buy the bread and provide for their family for the next day. And that's the way, that's the ethic, that's the mindset of our prayer life. You go, well, I have money saved. I don't need to pray in that way. That's not true. We're talking on a spiritual level that we pray that God will provide for our needs every single day. I've got a really close friend who uh, he's got a lot of money. He's earned a lot of money, probably millions. And he was telling me just this week how his, his wife um, sometimes when he is going to sleep will bring up a financial issue or some sort of potential crisis. And here he's got all this money, but he's up all night tossing and turning over an issue he's trying to solve. And he said the way that he puts himself back to sleep is to say, who cares? Even if I go penniless, I have Christ. He goes to sleep. Daily provision, daily reliance on the Lord, whether we have much or we have little. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul spoke of uh, a illustration of the, the Korean War after it, it had ended, there was a large number of children who were orphaned, a large number of children who had relief agencies dealing with their problems and their physical and their spiritual help, and the children had difficulty sleeping. We, we see this in other wartime um, scenarios, but these kids had anxiety, and in particular, even though they were getting three meals a day, they had anxiety over whether they were going to eat the next Day, The relief workers in one particular orphanage decided that each night to solve this, they would take a little piece of bread and put it in the hand of the child um, at night. And they wouldn't eat it 
they would hold it as their security blanket so that the next morning they knew, they knew with certainty that they would eat. It helped their anxieties and helped them to sleep. I was telling Judy this illustration. And she said that growing up, she had um, a childhood friend who was part of a family that had adopted a Russian girl who had been impoverished and malnourished. And when she was acclimating to her new household, it was the same effect. She would get up in the middle of the night, though, and go to the refrigerator and find some food and just stuff it under her pillow so that she could sleep. Now, these are illustrations that are that draw our sympathies, but we're supposed to be drawn in faith to our Lord. We are coming to God as worshipers, not consumers. We're not coming as critics. We're not coming to judge church programs. We're coming as beggars who are begging for bread, saying, God, provide for my need according to your riches and glory. Help me not to be anxious. It's where we're going to be headed at the end of Matthew 6. Verse 31, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God. God provides for us, and he provides for us even in view of the kingdom. And sometimes people do die of hunger, even in faith, but God provides in death through the kingdom um, provision there as well. This is not licensed to... Um, stop working. The Bible says in First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians three ten. If you don't work, you don't eat. We're supposed to work by faith. The Bible says in First Timothy five eight. Paul told Timothy to provide for your family. If not, you're worse than an unbeliever. We work by faith. We act by faith. But we also trust in faith that God is going to provide. God is our ultimate boss. So let me say this, if you're anxious on the job, how are you performing? Well, or are you performing poorly? If you're worried about how everything's going to work out on the job, typically that worry will undermine your energy to work well. But if you trust in faith and trust that God's going to provide and leave the results to him and you take stands, you take moral, spiritual, gospel stands, you live right, you're a subordinate, a true subordinate, but you're serving God who's overseeing it all, your energy level will go up. You'll be stronger and you will be like Joseph or like Daniel on the job in the Old Testament. Those stories of remarkable figures of integrity. And that's how we need to live in this world. God's going to provide for my daily needs. And so now I'm just going to work. I'm just going to do it for God's glory and namesake. Those who fall away into all kinds of debt and, and worry about how the budget will work out. Oftentimes it becomes this vicious cycle where you're worrying so, so much that you can't do right by your own household finances. So you need to repent of worry and trust in faith that God is providing in the bigger picture. And we receive everything with gratitude. One simple application, simple application of this is praying before meals. Um, 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5 is the one place in scripture that speaks of praying before a meal. We've got so many kids typically hanging off the chandeliers and stuff in mealtime that it's a challenge. It turns into a great shepherding issue to just to bring everybody to center down and pray. But it's so important to seek the Lord with, with seek his face and thank him for his daily provision. It's a good habit. It's a good tradition to pray before a meal. Um, 1 Timothy 4, 5 says, For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer as we receive the meal with thanksgiving. It's set apart in our hearts. 
I mean, the, the, the germs don't go away from the food because we pray over it. It's not spiritual food at that point. It's just set apart. We're just grateful. It's worship to do that. Well, the first point is daily provision. The second area that we should pray constantly in a world with, that, is, that is pressing on us is for complete pardon. That can be a confusing point because we know that once you are saved, you are completely bought by the blood of Christ and you have been pardoned. You're under Romans 8.1, no condemnation status. And yet at the same time, we should pray in light or in view of our complete pardon. And the verse answers why. Look at this. It says, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Remember, this is in the context of persecution. We might have all kinds of people that we need to suddenly forgive, where our jobs are threatened, where something's happened. Somebody's hurt someone that you love. Our hearts, as the culture gets harder, need to become softer, right? We need the clay of our own hearts to stay drizzled with water and soft so that we can be molded and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ, right? Clay left to its own Self will just harden. Your spiritual life left to itself, hey, I'm saved, so I don't need to think about it, will harden up in a culture where hardship comes on you. But if you keep drizzling your heart, Clay, with prayer, prayer surrounding the grace of the gospel, where you've been saved, it'll stay soft and moldable as things get harder. It's an interesting concept, but really it's as simple as praying for grace when you are tempted not to forgive. Just as we're praying for daily provision of food, we need to pray for daily provision of grace to have a softer heart. This is almost moving from the physical need to the spiritual need, but both are physical and spiritual. Uh, Even this, you're working with physical people who you need to forgive and you need to keep your heart soft. You're praying for physical food or provision and you need to keep your heart soft about that. The word here is for sin is the word debt, is the word debt. It's a very appropriate word. Some of your translations might read trespasses. You might have memorized the Lord's Prayer in terms of forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our trespassers. But the word debt is a better word. It's a clearer word to interpret what the Greek word is here. Othelamata, which is the word for debt used in other places. And when we sin, we are in someone's debt for something to be reconciled. That's the picture. When we sin against someone, something has been interrupted. There is a wrong that has been committed. We are now suddenly within someone's obligation. When Let's start with God, though. When we sin against God, it's as if, and we can't harm God, but it's as if we are robbing God. God's holiness and glory in that moment. We're taking something away from God as if we could. We're sinning against God. And then on a lesser level, when we sin against others, it is that same idea. There is now a discrepancy in the relationship. Something needs to be done. There's a shortfall between us and God and a shortfall between us and other people. Reconciliation is required. But what kind of reconciliation are we talking about? A monetary reconciliation? I mean, debt is really the effect of the sin. So what kind of debt needs to be repaid? Well, it's important to understand the difference between a monetary debt and a moral debt. 
And I'm going back to R.C. Sproul here, uh, but it's good enough to read. You need to hear how he explained the difference between a monetary debt and a moral debt in view of our prayer life and what we're really praying about. Listen to this. We usually think of debt in a monetary term as a monetary term. So how does this translate into moral debt? Imagine a little boy who walks into an ice cream parlor and others and, and orders an ice cream cone with two scoops. The waitress dutifully prepares his ice cream cone, then says, that'll be $2. When he, is heart, when he hears this, the little boy begins to cry. He looks helplessly at the waitress and says, but my mommy only gave me $1. So what would you do in that situation? What would you say? You would say what we would all say. Let me satisfy that young man's debt. You'd reach into your pocket and take out some money and pay the waitress the extra dollar. If you don't, God bless your sin-sick, shriveled-up soul. Just kidding, all right. So you pay the extra dollar. Since the money you were offering is legal tender, the waitress would have to accept that payment. And the little boy could go home with his ice cream cone. But suppose that when the little boy was told his ice cream cone would cost $2, he turned and ran from the store without paying And went right to the arms of a police officer who was on his beat while the waitress is crying out, stop thief. The officer would bring the boy back into the store and ask the waitress what happened. And she would explain that the boy had just stolen the ice cream cone. Once again, you see this happen. So you say, wait a minute. Wait, 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 officer. Please don't put this boy in jail. I'll pay for his cone. Here's the distinction. In this scenario, the waitress does not have to accept your money because now the boy has a moral debt, not just a monetary debt. It's a deeper debt. The distinction between a monetary debt and a moral debt is important because it can give us a deeper understanding of what took place on the cross. When we sinned, we fell into a moral debt to God. Jesus paid our debt at the cross, but because it was a moral debt, the father was not required to accept the son's payment. However, in his mercy and in his grace, he allowed Jesus to pay our moral debt. The moral debt that creates the deficit between where we stand offending God's holiness is something that we could never pay by works, never pay by money, never pay by action, never repay in religious duties. We could never repent enough to make up for the debt That's unreconciled between us and God. Our sin does that. And so Jesus steps in and pays the debt on our behalf and gives us grace that we need to make up this kind of deficit. This is not just a money concept of indebtedness that's made right. This is a moral concept. This is the um, canceling of our sin debt. The cancellation of our sin debt with God, being made right with God. This is the picture of grace in our lives. It's not just grace that you've been raised in church. It's not just grace that you're hearing the Bible on some sort of moralized level. This is the grace of God where God says, I want you, child of God, to be mine. And I'm going to pay. And the Father is going, I accept The the Lord Jesus' payment on your behalf and things are made right with God on the deepest, deepest heart level. This is why we forgive other people. This is why we ourselves seek forgiveness 
It's not okay just to go through the motions and say, I know I'm saved. I know I'm forgiven. So it's not going to affect my heart in day-to-day life. It's the unhealthy marriage of the man and woman that had been married for 50 years. And at their 50th year anniversary, the wife kind of sheepishly said, you know, honey, I just wish that you would sometimes tell me that you love me. And the, father, and the husband says, well, I told you that 25 years ago. And if something changes, I'll let you know. That just doesn't work. I don't know that. I told it too well. It's like, oh, that's really sad. (laughs) But that's how we view God sometimes. Uh, What we're called to is a daily recognition that we've been saved by grace. We didn't just have a monetary debt that was made up, you know, where there was a deficit. We ran out the store and we were a thief. We were a robber. We were stealing away. We were at enmity with God. We were stealing his holiness and his glory in our own sin. And we were rescued and intercepted by saving grace. The moral debt has been canceled and it causes us in our own hearts to forgive other people. Forgiveness is the word. It's a beautiful word. It's the word afe in Greek. It means to hold something open with an open hand and let it go. It's like you're holding on to you know, a bird or something. You just let it fly away. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness is not just the reconciliation that happens verbally where you're talking and making things right. That's the fruit of true forgiveness. But forgiveness is first and foremost initially letting something go. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We're, we're remembering the communion that we have with God because our sin debt has been Forgiven and canceled, and so we forgive others. We love God because He first loved us. We're to be kind hearted, tender hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has what? Forgiven you. We've been forgiven, so we forgive. We release people of their debts because we have been first released. We confess our sins, knowing He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that forgiveness is not initial saving forgiveness. First John 1 John 1.9 is talking about the ongoing recognition of the gospel. And so that's where we're confessing our sins in view of already being forgiven. And we're just reconstituting our relationship with the Lord when we do that. Forgiving is not some sort of tit-for-tat obligational thing. It's, it's, it's a heart thing. It's what we do from the heart. We're really praying that we're... We're praying for grace at this point. I mean, how hard is the world going to get? Well, it's going to get harder and harder and harder and more and more and more difficult. It's promised to. The persecution is coming. And as it increases, this is our greatest opportunity to be the most like God and forgive our enemies. It's been said you're never more like God than when you forgive someone. Why? Because that's the gospel. You're never more like the gospel. We were those enemies who have been forgiven. That's what we need to do. You remember the parable of the unforgiving servant from Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter was like, how, Jesus, how many times do we need to forgive? Seven times, is that enough? And then we're off the hook. And Jesus says, 70 times seven, which is the uncountable, you know, you just, you don't think about how many times. Then he gives the, parable of the kingdom of heaven being compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants 
And then there was one who came who owed 10,000 talents and he couldn't pay. 10,000 talents would be an unpayable amount in that person's lifetime. So the only answer was either debtor's prison forever or you would be forgiven an unpayable amount. Says, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Denarii is the day wage, so a hundred days wage, three months of work. And seizing him, and he began to choke him, paying, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. Listen to this last line. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Notice the emphasis is on the heart. Consumers, they don't forgive. Worshippers, they know they've been forgiven. They forgive. They let things go. We love because our hearts have been made soft. Is there an area in your life where you've forgotten your forgiveness? Like this parable indicates, someone who forgets that they've been forgiven an eternal moral debt. If you forget that, your heart could be hardened where you're not right with God and you're not willing to forgive. We need to do that. Examine that. Think about that. We're to love our enemies, Matthew 5, says, right? But our third point brings us to our final point, and this is the one enemy we can't love, and that's the enemy of our own sin. The enemy of sin. It's the last point. We pray for daily provision, complete pardon, and then thirdly, spiritual protection. We need to be protected from our own sin. What does this mean? Well... Look at the last verse that we're going to cover, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This can be confusing to us because we know that our Heavenly Father wouldn't want to lead us in any situation where we would actually fall into sin, right? God is not the author of evil. The devil is the author of evil. So how do we understand this? How do we even understand um, a verse like Matthew 4, 1 that says, Then Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We have to understand first and foremost the word temptation and how it's being used. Uh, The word temptation is parosmos, which can be interpreted in two ways. And it's interpreted back and forth in both ways all the time. The word parosmos means trial or test or temptation. And the context determines how that word is to be interpreted. And understanding the context and how to interpret that word is how to understand how to pray this final and last petition that I think is so important. 
Things are going to ramp up. Our daily provision could be threatened. Things are going to ramp up. We could be tempted not to forgive an enemy. And things are going to ramp up and we could be tempted to begin to sin in ways that we never thought possible again in our own spiritual Christian journeys. And we're to pray against our own temptations. How do you understand this? Well, I think looking at James is important. If you look at James chapter 1, you can see in verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, here it is, trials of various kinds. The word trials is parosmos, trial, a test. You're going to fall into sudden tests. But then that same word, if you go down to verse 12, is used differently. It's used like that and differently. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. You're running a marathon race. You're going through un, some unforeseen territory, some unpredictable circumstance. It's really hard. And the picture is you've marathoned all the way to the end. You cross the finish line and you're receiving, it says, the crown of life. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. You are vindicated as a Christian. But then look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, that's the same word as test. So you're going through a trial, but suddenly things flip from the outside pressure to an inside temptation, an outside parasmos that was unexpected, like you fell amongst thieves or you lost your job or you were stricken with cancer or something's going wrong to an inside response to that pressure. The parasmos is from God as a trial, but it is parasmos that's a temptation, a sin temptation that is from our own hearts. That's what we're called to fight against. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. This is where the pressure comes down. You recognize it, but it turns into a sinful response where you're shaking your fist at God saying, this is your fault. You've done this to me. For why? Why can't we blame God? For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Temptation doesn't come from God. It doesn't go to God. God's holiness is impenetrable to temptation. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, verse 17 says in the same context. So we can't blame God. Sin is birthed in our own hearts, the context says, and as it matures and grows, it brings forth death. It's the picture of a stillborn birth. It's horrible. Sin is horrible. This is what we are to fight against. So bring all of that teaching back to this phrase and let's understand what it means. And lead us not into temptation. That is not saying that God will not lead us into trials. He led the Lord Jesus to be tested in the wilderness by Satan himself. External temptations that were coming, not from the heart because Jesus is perfect. But God put Jesus in that setting to test him. He puts us in settings to test us. As 1 Peter speaks of, to refine us like gold. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. We're in that kind of testing zone. But our prayer... In that trial that that God allows in our life is to recognize that God has sovereignly put it there. And we pray that God will not allow in our own lives. He'll give us the grace to not allow a trial from God. That's a good thing to turn into a temptation from our own sinful hearts. That's a bad thing. That's what's loaded in this phrase. Lord, lead us not into temptation. As I'm going into trials, as I'm going into the 21st century as a Christian, let me not be tempted in my heart to sin against you, to blame you for a difficult circumstance, to blame you or sin against you as I undergo trial. This again is a prayer for grace. 
Let's apply it this way. Lord, keep me from giving in to my own anxieties while I'm struggling to make ends meet. Lord, give me the grace I need to forgive a real enemy. Help me to trust your promises while I endure these circumstances. Lastly, I'll just be quick. The last phrase actually brings a personification and a face to the enemy of sin. Who's the author of sin? Well, Satan is. You say, well, where did you find Satan in this text? Well, look at verse 13. But deliver us from evil. The word evil is actually the the masculine use and can be translated delivers from the evil one. It's the same prayer that Jesus prayed and we read um, two weeks ago, John 17, 15. Um, I didn't ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. It's the same language 1 John 2, 13 uses that young men who are growing in the Lord have overcome the evil one. We're fighting against not flesh and blood, but principalities, against the schemes of the devil. We resist the devil, 1 Peter 5, 8. We're sober-minded. There's an adversary. The devil prowls like a roaring lion. Martin Luther, he called the temptations of Satan the anfectung, which um, as an Augustinian monk at one point he grabbed an inkwell thinking Satan was in the room and threw it against the wall. That shows his prayer passion where he prayed regularly against um, the temptation to compromise, to fall into despair, to want to reject the faith. These are all real satanic temptations. Lord, deliver me from Evil, deliver us from these temptations. What's the answer in turbulent times? How are we to persevere? Don't be a consumer. Don't live the Christian life as an extra thing, as an extra commitment. We're not joining a gym when you join the church, you're not joining a club. This is a commitment. In kingdom ministry to get in the flow of what God is already doing and promised to do. We're just part of the family of God and we pray these things for daily provision. We pray in view of our complete pardon and we pray that God will protect us spiritually from our own sin and from Satan himself. This time.